Fire and EMS crews are stretched thin across the D.C. area, forcing difficult conversations between paramedics and hospitals. I believe that we can make it down the street to you uh, as an actual trauma center in 10 minutes, but if you're telling me you're not taking the patient, I'll take them up the street to doctors. I'm not telling you I'm not taking the patient, but I'm telling you there is no trauma service available right now. Okay, I'm just said, uh, I'm just saying, figure out what we're going to do, I'll let you know. Already short-staffed, the Omicron surge is pushing firefighters, paramedics, and hospital staff to the limit. So how bad is it? And what does this mean if you have an emergency? Last week, a combination of crowded emergency rooms and more than 10% of staff out sick or in isolation led many fire departments to mandate overtime, and in a few cases, reduce the number of fire engines and ambulances available. This week, I talked to longtime public safety reporter Dave Statter about what led up to these challenges and why Omicron is making things worse. So Dave Statter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Before we dive into fire and EMS departments and where we are now, let's talk about first the pandemic. You know, we, we saw it come um, to the scene two years ago. How did this really impact EMS and fire departments in the D.C. area as this pandemic has been with us for the past two years? Well, certainly it's evolved. Everybody was fearful of it in the beginning. We were very concerned and they took it very seriously. I mean, as you remember, there was a lot of decontamination going on in the fire departments. They actually cut that back a little bit when they realized more, learned more about COVID. So there, right. there was a lot of emphasis and people working very hard in the beginning when we went through the first wave of this and we saw firefighters and paramedics and EMTs and nurses get infected with it. And um, the first round they went through, let's take DC Fire, for example, they were getting close to about 10%, if I remember, of the force. And they were able to to handle it pretty well. They didn't have to put units out of service. They didn't have to go into enormous amount of overtime. They had to go into some, but it's different now. It's, it's a little bit different now because we've gone into two years and there are a lot of factors that are working against fire and EMS in our region and certainly the hospitals that have evolved over these last two years. Right, and so just a month ago, really, um, Omicron came to the scene and presented as being extremely transmissible, and we're seeing it run through the entire community. And much like the beginning, you know, our community is made up also of EMS and fire department workers, and they are getting sick right now. So what sort of staff shortages are we seeing and what staff shortages are they building upon? Let's back up just a little bit to the summer. A lot of these fire chiefs saw this, and I was seeing the same thing back in late August and September, a couple factors that were happening. One, many of the area hospitals were on yellow and red alert, which impact their emergency departments, which means that we weren't in the surge yet, but they were already having problems. And the hospitals will tell you this is staffing. Megan Clardy at WTOP did a wonderful story in early September about Children's Hospital Emergency Department being slammed, hearing from an employee in there. And the problem was they were having problems keeping staff, but it wasn't only there. For example, some of the fire departments were putting some units that weren't staffed, putting them out of service. They were forcing overtime. In D.C., there were regular announcements to say the shift is being held over till we make sure that we have all the positions filled. And this was a problem in fire departments and in hospitals. And remember, that's August, September, well before this Omicron surge right. began. So we already knew that the problems were going to happen. And what were the factors in the staffing problems at the fire departments and the hospitals? Pretty similar from what I gather, fatigue. There were people leaving. You know, five years ago, if you put up a, an announcement that you were going to hire firefighters in this region, you'd have hundreds upon hundreds of people applying it for the job from mm. out of state, from the entire region. 
Fire chiefs tell me that's not the case now. And they're seeing people leave. They're burned out. They want to go to a, an area with less work. Some paramedics, which are in high demand, are leaving to go to work in Wyoming or Montana or somewhere where they'll pay less, the cost of living is less, but they got the experience here that they needed and they're ready to move on and, and leave here. So they're already staffing problems in our fire departments and in our hospitals. And now, as you said, a month ago, this hits and it's just gradually gotten worse. Mm. So what does worse look like? For example, last week on Monday and Tuesday were really bad days here. The hospitals were holding medics and ambulances at the hospitals for multiple hours. Right. It's called the drop time, the amount of time an ambulance, after they take their patient to the hospital, how long are they at the hospital before they transfer that patient to the emergency department? And many of them before this had 30 to 60 minute drop times. Now we're seeing multiple hours. There were a couple in Prince George's County that were in excess of eight hours. That means the crew from that ambulance has to stay in the hospital for eight plus hours with their patient before they transfer it over to the emergency department. That's pretty outrageous, but what are you gonna do about it? What's the answer? Right, and what's at stake with that? I mean, with that much time, are people getting the care that they need or is it just a matter of waiting? Probably getting the care they need because you've got paramedics or EMTs with the patient at all times. They're, they're not abandoning the patient there. But what the real impact is, on the next ambulance call, because that ambulance is tied up or paramedic unit is tied up in the hospital for one, two, three, or eight hours even. And what this has done is become a longer wait for ambulances throughout the region. Last week, particularly in DC and Prince George's County, people waited longer for ambulances. We heard on the radio, and I put up some on Twitter, some of the radio traffic, where firefighters on the scene with their fire engines were with patients needing ambulances and they weren't coming. This happened all the time in the 90s in DC when they had an EMS system that wasn't as good as it is now and a lot of budgetary problems. You'd wait for a long time for an ambulance. We hadn't heard that too much until lately and particularly last week. Now, DC Fire, Prince George's Fire and all the other fire departments are beefing up all they can to attack this problem. They're also working with the hospitals to try to lessen these drop times. It's a big impact on them when these drop times raise. And that means they can put some more ambulances on the road, possibly if they, some reserve ambulances with more staffing, if they have it. Often they just have to wait longer for ambulances. So the only thing I disagree with the fire chiefs and their messaging is they always say it's having no impact and not lengthening our response times. Right. But we know for a fact it is. And that's the thing they say because a lot of time their bosses tell them to say that. And I'm talking throughout the region, they're, they're saying that. But anytime when you have a long drop time at the hospital, it impacts that ambulance and multiple ambulances. And suddenly when the next call and the next call come in, somebody's waiting longer for an ambulance. Last week in Prince George's County, they dispatched an ambulance from Crystal City to Hillcrest Heights, from Alexandria to Suitland, from Anne Arundel County to well into the interior of Prince George's County because they didn't have them in Prince George's County at the time. Now, since then, by the middle of the week, the drop times lessened a little bit. They were working more closely with the hospitals. The hospitals understood the problem and they're trying to alleviate this as best they can, but it's far from over. Right. And the solution is hoping for more staff and just waiting this latest surge out. I mean, is that really where we're at? Yes. One thing you have to, people have to realize, we're always going to have problems when you have a, a pandemic like this, and particularly when you have such a surge that impacts a region. 
there's no fire department or hospital that can staff for that all the time, 24 hours, seven days a week. The money isn't there, and it's not likely the money's going to be there. And if you staff for that, suddenly you're going to have a lot of people who aren't doing much. So they rely on overtime in the fire departments. Uh, where they can in the hospitals, from what I understand, they bring in nurses from outside, bring in staff from outside, but everybody's competing for all of those things. The competition right. for paramedics is high. The competition for nurses is extremely high. Now, the one thing is the fire departments in general are a little more transparent than the hospitals. We always know a little less about the hospitals. So there is always that question, what's really going on inside there? In many cases, they're not as open and transparent as we would like them to be. And for us to fully understand what the pressures are on our area hospitals. And to really zoom out and look at society at large, what happens when an EMS and fire department regionally really are stressed and at their wits end? There is an impact on the public. The fire departments are can-do type thing. They're going to find ways to do it. I think this area has some of the best overall fire chiefs in the country. They are all people who look at the stats, who look at their people, and who try to balance, as one fire chief says to me, their mission with morale. And it's difficult. But all of them are trying really hard, but that still doesn't mean there isn't an impact. And I think the biggest impact is going to be, besides the fatigue you may find in some of the workers, is some delay. And maybe the stats don't quite pick up on it yet, but at least some delay in how long a transport unit gets there to take you to the hospital, and then a delay how long you're with that ambulance crew at the hospital. That is continuing, and that may get worse before it gets better. Though many departments, fire departments particularly over the last week or so, have put a lot of stopgap measures in to staunch the bleeding as best they could. They saw it coming. They're going into these emergency plans that they had for since the beginning of the pandemic, and some of them are having to activate some of that now and update those plans. But there are units out of service in Northern Virginia. There are ambulances and paramedic units that were serving communities that aren't being staffed. There are, in some cases, there might be a heavy-duty rescue squad, which is like a toolbox on wheels, and a fire engine in a station, but only one of those two units is staffed. That's an impact on the public. Now, that doesn't mean somebody isn't going to come to your home when you call 911. It may take a couple minutes longer. They may have to wait longer for specialized equipment, but that is an impact on our region. You know, mm -hmm. I talk about the pressures on the fire departments, on the staffing, and that the people that are leaving and maybe don't want to do this emergency service stuff anymore or want to go to a quieter area. It's the same thing that every business is dealing with right now. Yeah. You know, in, in some form or another, we're all, we're all burned out, but we all have to think about we're in this together. And if I call 911 for a non-emergency, I impact my neighbor who may have a real emergency. And we need to keep that in mind that we're in this together as we go through this. It's just not over yet. And it's mm -hmm. going to be a while before apparently it is. Well, all right. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Luke. I really enjoyed it. We now go to Battalion Chief Ben Kaufman at the Montgomery County Fire Department. Chief Kaufman is in charge of organizing and scheduling staff. We talk about what he's seeing on the ground. Battalion Chief Kaufman, welcome to the show. Before we go and talk about the current staff shortages that fire departments are seeing, can you talk a little bit about what it takes to fully staff an entire EMS and fire department? What does that look like? Montgomery County staffs a little over 300 positions constantly 24-7. That's made up of career personnel and volunteer personnel, but every seat needs to be full when we start the day, right? So 
the staffing challenges from COVID or any staffing challenge really plays into an inability to get that number of people reliably to come to work in order for us to, to get that done. You know, if we run out of people, we have to tell people they can't go home. And that's something we, we definitely don't want to do. But then if you add COVID on top of that, uh, it's really added basically double the number of people that we normally have off. It's made that to the point that we're, we're at a point that we had to make some decisions about staffing in the department. Right. So let's move up to now. What does this doubling of a depleted staff mean for your fire department's day-to-day work? Our first responsibility is to the community, to the residents and visitors, and we take that very seriously. And we will do everything we can to make sure those all apparatus is completely staffed, including involuntary overtime. Well, the involuntary overtime had gotten to a point um, that was excessive. And when you compound that with continuing increasing number of absences related to isolation or quarantine, you know, you have to balance our ability to continue to staff the the number of units with some potential very temporary cuts on special services. And that's that's where we are. So they took two pieces of apparatus that when we are at a point that we're forcing people to work, we can de-staff these units um, just until we can get people back to work uh, for that individual shift. So it may be just for a few hours a day or for one shift, but on a day-to-day basis, we're looking at our personnel availability and cutting two of those pieces of apparatus. You know, they're strategically chosen uh, where there's plenty of coverage with other apparatus around and there are special services. So our commitment to providing ALS service, transport services, and water in the terms of fire engines that bring the water to the scene and the hoses to the scene, those are remain fully staffed and won't be cut. Got it. Got it. So in other words, there's basically triage effort of what is being staffed and the highest priority apparatuses. And that means engines, right? Engines and transport units, yes. There's basically a triaging. And we're at a point now, staffing levels are so low that this triaging is is currently happening. And so has the service, meaning, you know, I have an emergency, I call 911, has that service been impacted at all? Or have operational methods really been able to guard against that despite the high levels of staff shortages? No, our ability to respond to 911 calls has not changed at all. We're completely able to meet the need, respond to calls, and actually more so, I think what's impacting our ability to provide service or might impact our ability is what's happening in the emergency departments. So the emergency departments are experiencing a surge in numbers, and I, I'm focusing on the ERs. And what's happened over the last couple of months is this steady increase in the time from when the ambulance arrives at the hospital until it clears the hospital. And that way, they make themselves available for another call. And that had increased, and it was kind of at a steady point. And then about two weeks ago, we started seeing this sharper increase in what we call drop time. That's that the time I just mentioned between arrival and clear. So all six of the ERs are saying to me, we are seeing unprecedented number of people walking into the ER uh, and wanting care. And they're not necessarily getting admitted to the hospital. And I can say that because the admissions haven't gone up, right? So people are coming in wanting COVID tests or presenting with mild or moderate COVID symptoms when they otherwise could be cared for at home. And then I start asking myself, well, what is, what's driving that? And I think I live in the community, I live in the county, and I think that the county's done a great job with providing access to testing. But if you go on the county site, a lot of them are requiring appointments and there's no appointments available. So people are showing up at these testing sites with sometimes hours long waits to get a COVID test. And they think an emergency department, it might get them 
tested faster and the ERs are not set up for that. They're not a testing site, right? You have to go in as a patient. You have to be seen right. by a doctor. You have to get worked up. So those ER numbers are impacting the ER's ability to see an ambulance when they come in because there's no beds in the ER because they're all taken up by these patients that are walking into the waiting room. And the worst thing that could possibly happen is in those 100 patients that are sitting in the waiting room, somebody comes in having a heart attack or a pulmonary embolism or needs emergency surgery for some reason, right? Then they're buried in this group of people. So it's already complex work of an ER charge nurse and the nurses that work there, the triage nurse to really triage and pick out the, the sickest patients becomes more complex because of the volume that comes in. And then you add into that ambulances that continue to arrive with our normal volume. And it, it's, it's really complicated things to the point that our drop times were increasing. So we had to take action in that way and, and kind of take some measures outside of staffing really to address what's happening in the hospitals. Right. And what's at stake there? I mean, what happens when an ambulance isn't able to kind of have a quick turnaround time or drop time? If unchecked and we just let ambulances stand at the hospital for six hours, eventually the next 911 call could potentially be waiting for an ambulance to come from further away, right? We're never going to say, no, we can't come, but it could result in longer wait times for an ambulance. Now, we're very well resourced in Montgomery County, and we haven't gotten to that point. And we have, I think, in advance tried to get ahead of this by saying, we're watching this increase in drop time and we need to take action. And how does right now kind of compare to when this all started? So from the clinical side, we are not seeing quite as many really sick patients as we did. So we look at a bunch of metrics on a day-to-day -day basis. We count the overall number of PUI patients or COVID patients we see. We have seen a dramatic increase in that in the last week or so. But last time we saw a much sharper increase, a corresponding increase in patients who had breathing problems. We saw an uptick in number of cardiac arrests. Uh, we saw a, a higher number of patients with hypoxia, so low oxygen levels. We're not seeing that with this. And I have to think that that is because our community is very well vaccinated. There's still some people who are not vaxxed. But the fact that we're vaxxed and boosted, I think, is providing a, an extreme layer of protection for the community as a whole. And we're seeing that in corresponding data that we're looking at. Back in 2020, our overall call volume dropped significantly, but the calls that we were running were very serious calls. What we're seeing now is we're back to kind of to our pre-COVID volume that we're running. Um, and then within that, we're having COVID patients that are that are calling number one. So Right. And because that is a huge difference between right now and at the start of this, I mean, at the start of this pandemic, everyone was home. People weren't breaking their arms probably as much or just doing things that would get them injured and need for medical assistance. But now, you know, things are opening up and during the surge, our society isn't shutting down. Early on in the pandemic, we had almost zero pedestrian trucks, car accidents, and all these other things that just indicate that people are moving around. With this surge, people are still moving around and we have the same number of those type of incidents on a day-to-day -day basis. With all this in mind, what can, you know, a listener who, you know, is concerned and wants to make sure that EMS and fire departments are getting the help that they need, what could the public do to lessen the weight on y'all's shoulders? Honestly, I think on an individual level, people need to be vaccinated. They need to be masked when they're interacting with other people. And as much as it pains me to say, avoid public crowded places. This is very contagious you know, from what I've seen, it's not as deadly. I mean, the, the numbers I pointed out, we're not running those cardiac arrests, the breathing problems to the extent that we were before, um, but people are definitely getting sick from this and you, you don't want it, right? 
And the best way to do that is as an individual, protect yourself by getting vaccinated, get boosted and wear a mask when you're, when you're around others. Uh, if you only need a COVID test, you have mild symptoms and you have known COVID, you, you do not need to present to the emergency room. But I'm not discouraging people uh, from going to the ER for other reasons. What was really concerning at the first wave and the second wave of the pandemic really was just sharp drop off in patients who presented with heart attacks and strokes. It didn't mean that people weren't having heart attacks and strokes. They just weren't going to the hospital for that because they thought, I don't want to go because I don't want to get COVID. So it, the messaging has to be real careful here. And I don't want to say, you know, if you're having those symptoms, avoid the hospital, right? And it's further com complicated because if you do have COVID and then you have shortness of breath or chest pain, the COVID itself can cause embolism in your heart or in your lungs. So you do need to go to the hospital when you have COVID and you have those symptoms, right? It's nuanced and it's tough to tell people not to go, but it's clear that if you're only going to get tested, the emergency room is not the place to do that. And you just have to wait, wait in line at the publicly available, the county sponsored testing sites, check with your doctor. As Omicron started, I think there was a clear message from the top down public health wise, you know, this is time for concern, but not for panic. Do you have, you know, choice words for how to define this situation? We're not in panic mode. I think the people who are going to the hospital for just a test, it is complicating how we do business today. But like I said, we're not seeing this huge spike. We're not running out of ventilators. We're not seeing this huge spike in deaths as a result. But we want to be mindful that Omicron's very contagious and we should avoid being in public places when we can and wear a mask when we're around others and get vaccinated. Uh, but certainly no reason to panic. It's just, it's something to be mindful of when we're moving about our day. On Sunday, Governor Larry Hogan went on CNN after recovering from COVID-19 himself. The Maryland governor said the next few weeks may be the worst of the entire pandemic. Look, we believe that um, the, the next four to six weeks are, are really going to be a terrible point in this crisis. And it's potentially gonna be the worst part of the whole two year fight. And we're gonna take and continue to take every action we possibly can uh, to, to help our hospitals, our nursing homes, and to keep people safe. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Luke Garrett. Our cover art was created by cartoonist Audrey Garrett. Our music is courtesy of Lockspeed. Join me next Monday as the world recovers.